Captain Picard, priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Am I ready, Roman? Readier Room, not to be confused with Continuing Mission. Ours is the only TNG rewatch podcast made by people who were there to watch the magic happen on set. My name is Mitchell Mills, Chief Consultant of Services at Paramount, and with me is my life partner, Brandon Hobbs, former Head of Resources Management. Brandon, how are we doing today on this day, the birthday of the Emperor? Oh, doing great, Mitch. We're all and, very excited, uh... right? Very excited, but you know, before we get into the exciting stuff, I think there's something we we need to talk about. Um, mm, mm. I just want to extend to our uh, amazing audience my sincerest apologies for uh, the late recording of this episode. Yeah, there's um, um, and I think I think it's it's important for us to be upfront about you know exactly what happened. Um, right, and so the truth is, audience, that. Um, I know this is going to be tough for you, Mitch, but um, Mitch has a bit of a a bit of a poker addiction, mm. right? And you you said you'd prepared a statement today. Um, if if you want to share that, yeah, this. So uh, it's difficult to come to terms with you know one's demons like this, um, but I just wanted to tell everybody out there that um, gambling addiction is a very real thing. And it, it's there's no shame in needing to get help. There's no shame in admitting that you have a problem. Um, if you ever find yourself uh, taken away from your obligations just for having seeking the thrill of, of gambling and winning, then that's a very good sign that you might be suffering from um, you know this kind of deep addiction. So they have gamblers anonymous uh you can reach out to their website their phone number uh, 1-888-354-2679 um and really get the the help that you do need if you even suspect that this might be you i recommend looking into it if you suspect that a loved one might uh have this problem then please get them the help because they they desperately need it um but because of that, we were unable to record at our usual time. We're recording now, and hopefully we can move forward from this and not uh, not cause any more disturbances in our listeners' schedule. So our, our sincerest, my sincerest apologies on that one. Couldn't have said it better myself, Mitch. And as your life partner, I will make sure to support you always. Thank you. Thank you. I, I cherish that that connection that we share. Um, so today's episode is called Lonely Among Us, episode six, I believe, of TNG? Or yes, just, yeah, yes. Episode six, okay. And this one uh, has a history of being pretty maligned uh, by, by press and fans alike. And, you know, watching it, you can understand why, I think. Um, mm -hmm. To... To peel back the, the the layers a bit and talk about the structure of television writing, 
And I think you mentioned this on previous episodes, that there's always the A plot and the B plot. And in a good episode of anything, those two things will work in harmony together. Sometimes they'll intersect, sometimes they'll just thematically support each other, but they will work together to create a better final product. This episode is a very, very good example of those two elements not working together at all, and one of them just drags down the other one immensely, and in fact ruins the final product. Yes, and it's in, it, we'll obviously get into this in more depth later on, um, but the A-plot's pretty decent in this episode. Uh, yeah. I think we can both agree on that. It has a few missteps, but overall nothing too terrible. The B-plot is probably the worst we've seen so far, I think. Yeah, I would, um, I would put those scenes as as not just the worst, but also the most confusing of anything on TNG so far. You, yeah. you watch them, and it's just a lot of like, huh? What? Yeah. And so in its in its conceptual stages, the the script of this episode actually called for the B plot being something like um, the Enterprise having just vague engineering problems or something, right? Which is boring, but it makes sense. It's you, also you can kind of fit it around. It's also the good kind of boring. I think like I'll tolerate some amount of boring in my Star Trek, and if right. the, the boring is like you know so, you know spacey science kind of stuff like oh you know we got to realign yeah, the tachyon beam like all right that's that's fine but it's like you see this stuff even in like pretty decent episodes where the b plot is kind of barely a consideration like the first thing that comes to mind is um what, what was it data's day which one was data's day if if I'm getting the episode title correct, that's I'm, the one where hmm. he tries to have a relationship with a woman. Oh, and yeah. then the B plot is the other crew finding a woman stuck in the middle of a floor. <laughs> yes, you remember that? I do remember yeah. that. I yeah, and it's just like it makes no sense, but it's like it's so unobstructive to the actual A plot that it's like you know whatever. Well, you I th know? I think talking about that episode, yes, the the plot events aren't obstructive, but I think tonally those two are, are quite at odds because <laughs> I guess it is a little weird. <laughs> the, the B plot is like pretty kind of body horror ish, like people getting like beamed into floors and walls or whatever. And uh, it's kind of like freaky imagery. And then, you know, it's smash cuts to like data pretending to be Ricky Ricardo because that's, that's <laughs> his, the, the information he's collected on relationships. <laughs> right. But I guess, I guess my, my whole my whole point here is that um, so much time is spent on this B plot mm. for absolutely zero resolution. Yes, and I guess when we talk about the end of the episode, we'll talk about that more uh, specifically. But that's the lack of payoff. I think is really what uh, is the final nail in the coffin, not just chronologically but thematically. In that, yeah, none yeah. of this was worth it. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about what these A plots and B plots are? Uh, some details. So, the episode actually starts more with its B plot. Uh, there's a reference to the <coughs> the Enterprise's current mission, which is to host uh, like a diplomatic meeting or or bring a bunch of diplomats to a meeting of some sort. And the diplomats are between split between these two different feuding uh, alien races. Um, one of which looks like a bunch of dogs, and the other one looks like a bunch of Lizards. Not, yes. not, not where you might think that was going. 
which is which is interesting. I mean, you'll remember, right? The the critical reaction to this was not good. No, it was very very not good. extremely negative. So when this episode aired, we had a lot of critics haranguing us over the use of these two uh, alien races um, because it like it was an interesting setup, right? Right, but um, as the critics noted, and as we just noted as well, it it really went nowhere. Uh, you know, why were these dogs and lizards fighting? Why were they trying to eat each other? And they were trying and to eat each other, by the way. They were trying to eat each other. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get to that. Um, and, you know, just generally, like, the amount of screen time they had was bizarre. Um, and this was actually... <laughs> you wouldn't believe this, audience. This was actually the fault of our wardrobe department. Mm. At first, it was supposed to be, like, a comment on race relations. Because we were supposed to have a race of dog people, yes, but also a race of cat people. Um, actually, the Cations, right? That's a deep cut. Um, yeah. Uh, what was this, the second time we tried to bring them back? I believe so. It's There was yeah. a lot of love for the Cations on set. It's like, when are we going to get them in? When are we going to get them in? But, you know, one thing always blocked it, another thing came up, and it just never happened. Right. Right. And so, when you look at, when you look at like, a race of dog and cat uh, people, the symbol symbolism, it's very obvious, very relatable from those viewers. I mean, everyone knows how dogs and cats feel about each other, right? Right. Oh, it's raining but... cats and dogs. Oh. <laughs> I don't think that has anything to do with how cats and dogs feel about each other. Oh, 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 geez. Mitch, what am I going to do with you? So anyway, um, yeah. Our wardrobe department just completely failed to produce a, a camera-ready cat alien. Um, mm. So the, the entire idea just got thrown to the wayside, and we had to fall back on these lizard costumes we'd had planned for uh, later in the season. Right. And so, um, yeah, the uh, the race relations commentary was uh, just completely lost in the mire of head-scratching that was uh, every single one of their scenes. Right, because you watch it, it's... It... When the two races meet each other, they they instantly just have like they're, they're like throwing petty insults at one another. They're like alluding to violence, and it, it happens like so fast. That you're saying like, "What? Okay, uh, I guess they hate each other. I guess these lizards and dogs, which I to to my knowledge just never really interact in nature, just don't like each other for some reason." And then the lizards are yeah. like, "Oh, I smell the dogs," and it's like, "Do lizards smell? Don't they just like kind of use their tongues for that?" <laughs> Like it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do use their tongues for that, right? And but... so, like, it's it's particularly odd to have two races of aliens, and this is just like from a meta perspective, two races of aliens introduced in one episode that yeah. are both completely masked. Yeah, and I, I actually think Gene, that was like one of Gene's rules was not to do that, to have uh, several masked aliens together at once. Yeah, mm. be, be, yeah, because it is it is. Don't you think so? It is kind of weird to watch, like, from an audience perspective. Well, yeah, because you don't get the emoting that you would with, with a human face. Yeah. So you can, like, see human eyes coming in from behind the masks, but those just, like, never look right because of how artificial the, the you know, masks and prosthetics are. So it, it makes sense that you put, like, a Klingon on the screen or a Romulan. You know, you can... That actor has... They, they have their face to work with. They can really enhance the scene. Um, but everything else is just super stilted. It's it's like, it's it reminds me of um, 
what was it? I think it was Michael Keaton's Batman, where he couldn't he couldn't move his neck, and like every scene right, he right. was in was just like rotating around, very silly. Um, the more human elements you remove from an actor's performance, the just the more stilted it's inherently going to be, and that compounds when you have several of those races coming together, or several of those costumes coming together. So, it's a good rule to have. Sucks that yeah, we broke it, it here. Definitely. It definitely does suck. Um, and and we spend a lot more time with the with the dog people than we do the lizard people. Um, well, that was a function of how many costume dog costumes we had, right? Well, yeah, workable dog costumes. I mean, the uh, the lizard costumes were in no way ready uh, by the time we needed to pull back on them. So uh, we only had a couple ones actually um, functioning the way we wanted them to. Mm. So I I think if I remember correctly, we uh, we kind of did away with a lot of the lizard scenes. Thank God for that. Like yes. Um, this is a plot that ultimately is not resolved. And while you might think that adding additional scenes with these these characters, these diplomats, would help the resolution of it, let me tell you, the answer to this episode was not to increase the amount of screen time those 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 guys got. That would only Certainly have exacerbated not. things. Certainly not. Um, and I, I do want to mention, while we're here... Um, the little spat that Riker has with, with the dog people and their uh, inclination to eat meat. Yes. Because uh, this does this is probably the one thing that does have some kind of um, horrible, horrible payoff in the end. But uh, Riker, Riker has a little row with, uh, with the, the, the dog people because they've requested to have, uh, I guess, a bunch of animals loaded on to the enterprise so they can eat them right and um i guess i never really thought about this but uh trek is a a post meat society so it's i i uh, like that idea because it's the logical conclusion of the um, the replicators you know once once right. you have this technology then logically there's no reason to to um have livestock for things like meat right. and whatnot, and it was it was just a little heavy-handed, um, especially mm -hmm. considering uh, how many times we deal with stuff like the Prime Directive, and uh, I don't know, maybe like not being so judgmental about right. the species that are behind yours in terms of development. Um, <laughs> felt a little off to me. It's totally. It's, re it's really funny because they'll be like, "Oh, you know, we've moved beyond uh, enslaving animals to to meet our needs." And he, you know, he looks down on the dogs for for eating meat. And then they'll go visit like the Klingon planet where they have like trial by combat, and it's everything's <laughs> yeah. brutal. And then they're like, "Well, these these are the Klingon ways. We must respect their traditions. We have to respect them. Now, yes. you know, everything's political, right?" So I guess the the moral of the story is that the Federation will respect you if you have enough firepower to to contend <laughs> with them. If you're not, then they'll just turn up their noses. Sounds about right, actually. Really, really good allegory for the real world. You know? Yeah, I, I I cannot believe it wasn't intentional. <laughs> it's um, it's one of those um beautiful beautiful accidents. <laughs> so moving on, we get introduced to the the a plot. Thank God. Um, thank thank God. God. Yeah. 
so, so we, the, the Enterprise is traveling, and uh, it encounters like a big ball of floating energy. It's just like a big ball of gas, almost in the middle of space. And they're like, "Should we fly around it?" And Picard's like, "No, just fly through it." Fucking idiot. And uh, that's what they do. And wouldn't you know it, that ends up having um, adverse consequences on their next couple of days. But doing that introduces like this kind of entity to the Enterprise that first, um, I believe it first gets into their computers, and then it starts possessing different people around the ship. I think of Worf. Yeah. It does yeah, something it gets Worf, Worf. Like, or... it knocks Worf out, maybe? Yeah, it knocks him out. Yeah, so he's... he's... <laughs> Standing up, doing, I don't know, computer stuff, um, because Picard told him to stop being an idiot. Right, because Worf needed an, an excuse in the script to, to be doing work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in, uh, in one of those little side rooms that you don't really ever come to understand the function of. Right. Um, and he touches a computer on the wall, and uh, the thing infects him, and we're treated to some exquisite acting uh from michael dorn here i believe he submitted that scene for emmy consideration yeah i mean he should have it was i mean my jaw dropped that day it's not easy Um, to to do a scream on set take after take after take um it takes a really powerful set of pipes like those of the late it definitely does and he was he was always really good about that he was. He was. If we needed a screamer, we'd call Michael. Just how yeah. it always went. Uh, um, it was good. So, but he gets knocked out, uh, and at this point, nobody's really aware of the problem with the ship. I think maybe there's some issue with the engines, but no, it's not seen as like super serious. Um, but Worf gets taken in to Doctor Crusher's office to get examined because he's injured, of course, and. There, we see what is somehow only the second most baffling costuming of the episode um, after the the terrible lizard outfits. I think the power (laughs) ranking would be the lizard outfits were the worst, then the crusher thing, I'll get to in a moment, and then the dogs. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, so we go in there, and Crusher's got, like, a terribly plastic really small helmet with like a like a visor on it um and it it's one of the worst props we've ever had in the show and yeah it's incredibly obviously bad like no nobody in the business would make this if you were going to make this you would um you would paint it like a, a less plasticky conspicuous color you would add on a little, a few more accessories. You would make it the size of, you know, Gates's head instead of, you know, a small childlike size. So she looks ridiculous. Um, all of these these flaws with it, and all of them make sense when you consider how we got the damn thing. So the first time we filmed this scene, it was very, very typical TNG. You know, Worf's lying there. Uh, Doctor Crusher's is kind of holding over the, the, the tricorder scanner thing on him. Same thing that they always do. Exactly how, how it always is. And on that day, one of our producers was on set, and he was watching it, and he was you know kind of looking at a clipboard, reviewing some notes of his. And while we're filming, he goes to Gene, they talk, and Gene kind of nods along. All right, okay, okay, okay. They break up, and then Gene comes in, interrupts the shot, 
he's like, okay, we need to, the scene's good. We need to do this scene a little more, you know, spacey, a little more sci-fi. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what do we got? And everybody just looks at him. It's like, well, Gene, what the hell are you talking about? You know, we're, I'm operating on a friggin' Klingon here. Of course it's sci-fi. Um, Gene, wasn't <laughs> enough. You know, the producers kind of shakes his head. Gene insists. Not obvious enough. Right, right, right. So it ultimately comes down like we can't rewrite the dialogue and we can't like do any we can't like change any of the characters right because Worf's the one who's we filmed getting uh attacked there's only one doctor on the ship so it's like okay what if we change the costumes and the props and stuff so we go to the prop guy prop guy kind of like throws his hands up he had done all his work on the episode now he's served this whole thing and he eventually goes home to to think about it rap shooting for the day it's not gonna happen he comes back the next day with this thing, this stupid helmet. And he's like, all right, Gates, put this on. Uh, we're going to film with this. And, you know, actors, they just do what they're told. But, you know, other people came up to him just, just idly talking. It's like, hey, where'd you get that? How'd you make that so fast? And he's like, nah, I just got it from my kid's fucking toy chest. It was like, it was. I, I don't know if it was a, a genius move or one of petty revenge in a way because i get it i get it we all have these these difficult problems on the job and sometimes you just need the quick and dirty answer you're not always going to be able to to nail it right but part of me always thought it was a bit intentional because i I know i know how how overworked that guy was and i know the resources he had with you know connections around the industry we've done things like that before like oh we need something at the last minute some other show help us out Right, 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 right. But this was almost intentional. I don't want to say sabotage, but it kind of, kind of was. Um, well, I mean, you remember the fight he got into with Gene about the teacups. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I think that sentiment was lingering, which is kind of what motivated this. Yeah, I, I don't think by this point, I, I think he was really starting to uh, just get a little bit pissed off about. These are these last minute demands. What What's funny is that he, he was almost, he was basically saved. Um, so yeah, that prop looks terrible, but when you stick it in an episode with those terrible, terrible alien costumes, it 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 hides it a little bit. You know, like everything looks bad. That's in this true. Episode, which yeah. I, I I think is what it was the only thing that saved him from not getting fired. You know, saved him from getting fired rather. <laughs> saved his job. It's, it's, he's very lucky guy, I think. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. That's a great, you know, like, like we said, like just a few minutes before, those lizard aliens look so bad that nothing could really, really reach that level in this episode. That's a great point. Amazing. And considering the work that he would later go on to do for the, for the series, you know, in later seasons, um, it's very lucky. For all of us, not just for him. For all of us, absolutely. Right. Yeah. You can only imagine what TNG would have ended up looking like if somebody else was the one, you know, creating our props. Uh, things like, you know, the strange artifacts that Picard comes to obsess over in later seasons. Um, right. The 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 different kinds of phasers and weapons that the Klingons and Romulans use, um, disruptors, Romulans. Like that was all him. It would have all yeah. been completely different yeah. with somebody else. It definitely would have. Yeah, we, we we lucked out with this episode, that's for sure. It's a real butterfly I guess we have, effect. We have something to thank 
yeah here so any, um, anyway anyway that's that scene you know they're looking over Worf like Worf you're completely okay what's what's going on and then Crusher touches Worf and then the thing that had possessed Worf via that attack moves to Crusher so to Crusher the, the the whole conceit of this this energy beings uh, a goal is is to find the captain right I, it's it's find goal the captain of the ship its goal is to make it back to where it came from and yeah. i think via finding the captain is the easiest way for it to do that right i don't know if there's like a really logical progression in like starting with Worf, going to crusher going to the computer where ultimately yeah crusher. i don't think it's logical so, but that's that's the ultimate goal of it. Yeah. That's all. Which, you know, is cool. Like, this is the A plot, and we mentioned before that this one works a lot more than the B plot. Yeah, um, it's actually a cool idea, and it actually ends up giving us a very cool scene for, you know, a couple of minutes before it falls in on itself later on. Yeah. But um, that's an example of, of this pay <laughs> paying off, you know, ramping up, the stakes increasing, you know, and that's that's actually a good part of the progression. Uh, you care more when Crusher's infected versus Worf than when it's in the ship's computer. You're like, oh my god, what's going to do to the ship? Um, it ends up right. taking somebody's life, and then it goes to Picard, which is like the, the real climax of things. Like, oh my god, Picard's compromised. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is a big thing, because he hadn't... Picard, up until this point, hadn't really been put in such a vulnerable position i don't think at all yeah yeah well he was having like delusions in the last episode true but okay so picard being in a vulnerable position that the rest of the crew is not also in yeah right right oh, that's 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 a good way to put it right yeah and and so you know you as the audience are kind of self-inserting as the rest of the crew here watching the captain go completely insane right um but in any case that's we'll we'll talk about that when we get to it um so crusher goes up to the bridge right hmm. um acts very suspicious as as she saunters over to one of the computers that data is working next to yes and um data is briefly concerned about her being there and then just seems to not care yeah he says something um, like I don't even remember what his line is, but he comments on her working next to him. But yeah, because she's she told she tells Picard that she's going to have to run some more. Uh, she's going to have to do more research on Klingon physiology or something to help Worf. Right. So she needs. But to instead, use the she, she looked up like uh, like navigational routes or something like that, and and Data makes a comment on that. He says, uh, "I don't understand what one has to do with the other." Um, and then doesn't do anything about it. <laughs> That's all. He just says it and just goes back to his business. Which very makes you convenient. Wonder, why have him comment on that at all? Exactly. Why? Why not just leave her alone? I, I'm not. I'm not sure if we were uh, trying to help along uh, the the more stupid people in our audience. Well, here, that but that happens very very often. It does happen. I mean, a good example of that is the the whole, you know, the, the Sherlock Holmes thing that happens later in the episode. Oh my god, the Sherlock stuff. So, and this would have been actually a cool way to lead into that. I mean, 
cool relative to how stupid it is. But, you know, later on in the episode, Dater, Dater, Data. Dater. Dater. You <laughs> just became British, man. <laughs> so Data takes on the persona of Sherlock Holmes because there's somewhat of a mystery on board between all the diplomatic stuff and the the engine problems that the the entity on board ends up causing so data's like oh i'm gonna solve this and to solve this i'm gonna take on to become like the greatest detective in in our records sherlock holmes so he takes out a pipe and he starts <laughs> you know t- talking exactly like him and it's a whole thing and now it could have been like oh i have i observed dr crusher at navigation when she was saying that she was looking for Klingon physiology and that's a clue for this and no that never paid off mm-hmm. But anyway, the Sherlock Holmes stuff was originally going to be a little different. It was originally going to be uh, Perot, his name? Oh, uh, Death on the Nile. Yes, 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 yes. From, you know, the, the Agatha Christie series. Um, yeah. A series of books. And because he was a detective that, you know, our writer staff and really a lot of history buffs, history buffs, mystery buffs. I cannot talk today mystery buffs uh really really enjoy um if you get into the nitty-gritty of it and i hold this opinion too those agatha christie novels are a lot more engaging than any of the arthur conan doyle sherlock holmes stuff much more much more uh geared towards the intellectual mystery fan i would say yes yes so that was what data was going to be he was going to take that character on and we were all kind of excited about that there were a lot of like small references to uh the different books that he appeared in it was going to be cool and a little love letter to anybody who um, was into that series. But the thing is that this kind of clashed with Gene's ideals for what the show was. Like the way that he stated in like the, the little Star Trek Bible that you know all the writers had to refer to was that the show really had to be approachable by people who, quote, had likely never picked up a book in their life. That's um, right. That's we didn't right. want to exclude anybody. And when you base an entire small subplot on a series of, you know, pretty old books, no one's going to get it unless they've, you know, done a little legwork in educating themselves throughout their life. And Gene did not want that to be the prerequisite to enjoying Star Trek. So Mm -hmm. that made it pretty far through the different revisions of the script, but at some point it got axed and... They're like, okay, well, everybody knows Sherlock Holmes, right? That'll be fine, right? And it was kind of with an eye roll that that was added into the last uh, last few drafts and ultimately what we see on on the screen here. So. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a shame in <laughs> actually a couple ways because uh, not only did we lose out on, um, on that, what I think was a very cool Poirot reference, um, but... This episode uh, really opened the floodgates for a certain someone. This guy. Um, this guy. Our uh, our favorite Sherlock Holmes fan. So the story goes that one fan absolutely loved the Sherlock Holmes stuff in this episode, right? And after it aired, he would contact writers and proposition them to write, uh, you know, another Sherlock Holmes episode. Uh, and and he, he told them he would pay them for it. Hmm. Um. He really likes seeing the TNG crew talk about Sherlock Holmes. I'm not sure if it was a sexual thing or what, but every time we got a new writer, um, they got tons of letters from this guy. <laughs> so it was it was almost a rite of passage, right? Yeah, anytime, anytime someone was in the writing room, they were like, yeah, I got this weird letter recently, and everybody would just kind of laugh. 
Um, yeah. But yeah. it was basically <laughs> harassment. Um, have you ever heard? Well, they they just on. keep coming. They just but keep Yeah, coming. no, go ahead. Have you ever heard um, Gates's story about this guy? No, I don't think I have. Okay, so this was during the show's run, towards the end of it. Um, a few of the stars are at like a convention and they're doing a Q&A. And there's like a whole panel of them. Audience is sitting in front, a bunch of chairs, you know, p- pretty typical scene. And I I think it was uh, Marina Sirtis was fielding some questions and some guy like raises his hand, goes up to the microphone and he starts asking her if she's ever read um, any of the Star Trek Holmes books. And she answers like, oh, you know, I read one or two. And he just like instantly jumps on. He's like, oh, what's your favorite one? And it it, it becomes like a pretty aggressive back and forth. Uh, and huh. everybody in the room is kind of getting like a little uncomfortable. That sounds very uncomfortable. Right. And it was Gates. Gates, who had spent a lot of time talking to the writers, um, who had heard stories of this guy before. And like a light bulb goes off. She's like, oh, that's the guy. So she, she stands up and like, you know points at him it's like you you know you're the one who's been harassing our writers and instantly the guy just like stands up and starts like waddling out of the room it was crazy <laughs> good for her yeah yeah wow really quick thinking because god he gave us he gave everyone so much grief it never stopped the mailroom was not fun no. i mean the mailroom's <laughs> never really fun but i uh, yeah the worst anytime anytime we would have a Sherlock episode and that's that's the worst part about this yeah is that some of these episodes actually made it onto the screen I don't know who was accepting this money these bribes to make these episodes but it's it's such a black stain on the series that this degenerate fan could influence the series to such a degree based on something that was supposed to be just a one-off thing it's a crime against humanity that Really Moriarty is. has a page on the Star Trek Wikipedia. <laughs> Absolutely genius stuff. High level, high concept stuff here. I'm very excited to uh, to to watch that episode again. Don't uh, anytime the Enterprise crew puts on those silly Victorian era costumes, I uh, I always try to take a sick day. Yeah, yeah, it it tended to just be an excuse to not have to write something. Ugh. You just steal a script from, you know, an old mystery novel. Literally just adapt it. Just, yeah, you're you're adapting it, and then something goes wrong with the holodeck, and that's that's your your plot. They they would change, like, um, in, in the mystery novel while adapting it, they would just, like, copy large chunks of text, change the word mansion to holodeck, and um that's how you write a star trek episode that's right yeah yeah uh, other yeah, really lazy stuff other series would have like oh you know it's the clip show episode every season and you know people would uh they would tune out they would kind of get frustrated like why are you wasting our time with this the the sherlock holmes stuff kind of ended up being our equivalent of that even if it was you know kind of made through nefarious channels um, yeah it became... yeah it essentially was and that's probably yeah. why they jumped on it so readily because i think um and it's it is actually pretty smart but i think they did realize that it would be a good replacement for clip shows yeah and it's it's kind of masking it to the audience because yeah it it looks like a news story for the show it looks like it's something that we put effort into when couldn't be further from the truth right it's really just not and this applies to pretty much every 
a period piece episode that works its way into any season. Do you remember when they did that for the, the cross season two parter? So between, I believe, season six and seven, um, it was one of those period piece episodes. Like Data goes back in time, meets Mark Twain, of all people. That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah, I totally forgot about that one. Yeah, it's um, it's after that, it's easy to see why we got canceled in season seven. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We uh, we weren't going to last much longer after that. No, no. Um, it was the Mark Twain in the coal mine that alerted us to the, the series' death. <laughs> so anyway, um, Crusher is relieved of her possession by the alien, right? Right, when and, she touches uh, the console and it goes into that. She seems very concerned um, because she's just woken up, basically, on the bridge. She has no idea why or how she got there. Um, and then, almost immediately after, um, in, in her scene with Wesley there, she shows absolutely zero concern for the fact that she was possessed. Yeah. She's not investigating it. She's not... She's just sitting on, on the couch reading her book or something. Um, I do want to note another nomination for People Walking Into Other People's Rooms contest. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, so, th so there's that. Um, interesting bit about this scene, actually. actually. Um, I, I remember the wires getting crossed a bit here. Because initially the scene uh, was supposed to be the beginnings of a a Riker Doctor Crusher romance subplot, right? Right. Um, I mean, you know, Riker. He's he's a womanizer. Um, you know, Crusher. She's a woman. She's a woman. Um, would have been interesting because, uh, you know, obviously Picard kind of has the hots for her. Right. It so was, we would have seen a little bit of Riker Picard tension. It, it was. It would have been an interesting power struggle because you know yeah. Riker would have had the upper hand in this romance arena, but of course Picard has the upper hand as captain of the ship. And it, it kind of like reverses their their standing a bit because they would go and on the bridge and do work and Picard would be telling Riker what to do. And then, you know, in their off time when they're vying for uh, Dr. Crusher's feelings that, you know, Picard would kind of or Riker would be uh, outstanding and putting Picard down. So, right. It would have been right. interesting, and interesting dynamic. Fun, fun idea, but that's ultimately why it kind of never got filmed that way, because it, it would have been. I think I think they decided it would have been just a little too complex of a relationship for these two characters that were just introduced to the audience in what six episodes ago. Right. A little too much drama um, for the for the bridge crew in a Star Trek show. Mm. So um, we had to kind of repurpose the scene, and so we we replaced it with that that mother son scene um, that you see now when you watch the episode, just giving some minor exposition. Um, but the awkward thing about it was that most of the dialogue was just repurposed without any real edits. Yeah. So the result is just a very strangely intimate scene between a mother and her son, um, complete with thigh touching, right. I might add, well, um, yeah. which, which we suggested cutting and editing. Um, but Gene put his foot down on, on that staying in. Um, I remember Will wasn't wasn't no. too enthused. 
well, that was the problem, was that it had, like, the, the physical intimacy of it. So, yeah. you know, you could have kept the dialogue. It still would have been weird, but you could have kept it. But keeping the physical intimacy led to a lot of problems. Because after we had filmed um, the episode with the Traveler, Will Wheaton was very, very reluctant to be touched, I would say. He was, she was traumatized, basically. Yes, yes. And, and when we were filming this, whenever, you know, Gates would have to, you know, lightly and... Uh, very cautiously put her hand on uh, Will's thigh, he would just, he'd almost lose it. He'd break down sobbing. He'd be unable yeah. to say his lines. It um, was a clear sign of basically PTSD. Traumatized is a good way yeah. to put it. Um, it was tragic. So, you know, Gene, to watch. Gene had to step in. He's like, I'm going to be a you know, fatherly figure for you, Will. I'll help you out. You know, he takes Will by the shoulder, leads him away. They go off in another room and you know, ostensibly, I guess, to kind of help him overcome this kind of thing. So, you know, they come back, I don't know if it was like two hours later, you know, Will's got like a new outfit on, you know, looking like mm -hmm. a completely different guy, just very calm. And Gene looks pretty satisfied with, with how he helped him. And, you know, the next time they ran the scene, uh, just something as light as a touch on the thigh didn't even phase him. So, yeah. Yeah. Gene's yeah, way with yeah, kids yeah, um... was just phenomenal. And that's one thing you can't fault the man for. He really, really did a great job um, directing Will, even in future episodes. Mm. And Will always responded a little differently uh, to Gene's direction than anybody else's. Um, yeah. Almost, uh, I don't know if it was like a, a fear of reprisal, but it was a very instant learned response. That... Yes, yes. That is exactly how I would describe it. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, thanks to Gene, we got that scene. We got it. It's in the final, the final cut. I don't think yeah, that yeah, would happen without him. It absolutely would not have. Not have. glad. Glad he was on set that day. Well, you know, it was a Thursday. <laughs> oh yeah. So um, they, they, you know, Crusher and Crusher, and Crusher have this Crusher scene. And Crusher. And then I think the next thing to happen in the a plot is that the entity moves on to no it doesn't go to the card not yet not yet okay now i now i remember so there's it goes into the computer and while it's in the computer it tries to take control of the engines and it and monkeys around with the engine stuff like in an effort right. to, to redirect the ship back to where it came from because it's trying to get home and this creates a lot of problems in the engine room and this is where we meet like a brand new character. Sirius loves throwing yes. new characters in here. Um, yes. The, the the I don't know was he chief engineer or just just an engineer? I think he was just an engineer. I I think he was just an engineer, but I'm not sure if if that was ever specified. I think it might have been intentionally vague. Mm. Um, well, so they do mention Argyle by name, our beloved chief engineer Argyle. We do love him. Uh, we we honestly, what a great guy. Great actor. Really, just stand up, dude. Great pattern, but wonderful pattern. Honestly, my favorite pattern to put on sweaters, mm -hmm. um, sweater vests. I, I really, I can't speak well enough about Argyle. But um, the astute viewer will will note that uh, he's only mentioned by name in this episode for for some reason, mm. um, and uh, that's because. Uh, <laughs> 
the writers had introduced uh, a new element that kind of was supposed to uh, have much longer legs than it got. Um, and that is the, the Indian engineer that we meet in this episode. Um, he was going to be the one actually promoted to chief engineer after Jordy got passed up. Right. Um, it was kind of snuck in by the writers as, as, as like an F.U. to Gene for his racially based decision making from, you know, past episodes. Right. Long time Obviously, ready Jordy... fans will remember the story of uh, Jordy's chief engineering hopes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, <laughs> good for the writers. Right. right. Um, and Gene, Gene actually uh, eventually came around on this. Um, citing the engineer's race is, uh, and I quote, fitting for the engine room. Um, I guess more so than Jordy. Yeah, he he wanted Jordy to work in the kitchen, but we have to keep explaining to Gene that because of replicators, there is no kitchen. There is no kitchen. Yes. Um, and yeah, wow, that was a that was a constant fight for the first few episodes. Um. But we were actually looking pretty good with this new Indian character. It was cool. We had we had a, a new, you know, minority representative character. Um, great actor. Had a lot of room to grow. And then disaster struck. Because one day on set, um, I mean, you'll obviously remember this entire story, but for yeah. the audience, there's there's this little elevator in engineering in that that circular room around the what i assume is some kind of uh main engine device yeah we see it in the very first episode um yeah yeah again in um, this episode yeah it's just this little elevator uh really no railings or anything um i mean just from looking at it you can tell it's unsafe so one day on set the actor um, for, for the for the Indian engineer, he's he's riding the elevator as planned, and uh, he just falls right out of it. Tumbles. It was it was quite the drop. Like it may not look like it on TV, but that was that was a good few meters right mm -hmm. there because he he fell out of it right from the top. Um, and it was bad enough for him to break his leg, and so he's he's down there on the ground. Just screaming, cursing, um, blaming you know every other person on the set. Um, he was angry enough that he completely disavowed the show and just refused to appear. Right. Uh, so we were forced forced to kill him off in a bit of creative editing later on in the episode. Um, that was kind of tough. We had to find a uh, you know a lookalike, give him a wig, and everything. Luckily, the but, um, the entity in this episode was all just special effects, so it wasn't yeah. anything that we had to have him there to shoot with. Um, we can just add the the blue lightning in post. And yeah, uh, thankfully it was it wasn't super obvious or anything. I mean, when you go back and rewatch it, like now that you know this, yes, you might be able to kind of point out the scenes where that's not the same actor, mm. but. You know, for for someone watching it for the first time on TV, I think we did a great job. Um, but luckily, that elevator was removed uh, not too long after, yeah. lest it claim the lives of any other characters with big things ahead of them. That it, it it's a shame because I liked that elevator. I always thought it was kind of quaint in its design. Um, 
you look at it and there's nothing as cute on any other set in TNG. It is. It really is quaint because it's just an elevator. It's just a like an industrial kind of piece of crap elevator. Right. And because you think about the lifts that they use or whatever they call them, turbo lifts, maybe. Um, yeah. And those are like a very futuristic take on elevators. And this is like a very um, antiquated take on them. Like this is the kind of thing right. you'd expect right. to see in like a 1950s factory or something. Right. You, you can you can <laughs> picture someone standing at the base of it, cranking a lever as, uh, as it slowly ascends. Just like not even fluidly, it's it stops and goes with that person's effort. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. But it's it's that 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 story is interesting to me because it starts with his inclusion on the show, which a lot of people were really happy with. Right, they were happy to have the diversity added to the show in the form of an Indian. But right, that did not that attitude did not extend equally to all um, races and minorities. Uh, I mean, so in this episode, we have the second appearance of, you know, Colm Meany as, as, as the, the Irish, um, yeah. I think he's an ensign. I'm not sure of his rank, but so I think in this one, he was, he was some kind of security yeah, personnel. I think so. But whatever he is, you know, he's on this episode too. And anytime, anytime Colm was on set, uh, just the Irish jokes and insults and, prodding was came from everyone everyone i mean at, in, at yeah. this time of hollywood um that sentiment anti-irish was still still incredibly high it took a very mm -hmm. long time for that to to deal out like people would you know call him names behind his back they'd call him names to his face they call him meanie the mick it was meanie the mick it was <laughs> really something um but it's amazing that this was able to sneak its way onto onto camera, like in the final cut. This 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 prejudice. So in one episode or one part of the episode, he's walking through the hallway and he encounters one of the two um, alien races that have their diplomats on board. Uh, this one is the lizard person, a sleigh is the name of his uh, race, and he's walking along and he's like, "Oh, what is that doing on our deck?" In reference to Colm. Like, why Why is there an Irishman on the deck? And that's hidden because you think that he's talking about the dog uh, race, right. the other race of people. It right. was a very subtle, very prejudiced line to have in. Um, and it's almost like a completely different show from the one where most of the cast, 99% of the cast, was celebrating the inclusion of, a, of an Indian. But it just goes to show that every war, or every battle in the racism war is not created or fought the same way at the same time it's an ongoing process yeah yeah so yeah it, it huh. i honestly I, I was just gonna say that uh that that little scene really is a bit of genius work um in terms of just sneaking that dig in there but it, it really is concerning the uh the amount of anti-irish sentiment there was back in the day i mean he gets promoted to a, a often recurring cast member later on and that attitude followed him almost all the way up until the end of the series run um yeah luckily it subsided enough that they also put him on voyager they they put his character there too. right right yeah I, I remember he had a lot less trouble on that show right because the history wasn't there um right the writers the other actors 
people working on set, they hadn't heard all the jokes, which at that point kind of became more just inside jokes rather than overt racism, you know? It's like, oh, yeah. remember that time we all, you know, hated that you were Irish? It was pretty funny, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They kind of got old, too. They kind of stopped being funny. Yeah. A lot of them. It's, you can you only, know. you can only, like, have so many St. Patrick's Days before, you know, you just get tired of assaulting somebody. Right, right. And so luckily by the time Voyager rolled around, we were ready to move on to um to the jews right with that kind of stuff um so yeah it worked out so that's like we kind of haven't talked about their um that b plot in a while right kind of kind of caught up in the a plot but that's really because there's nothing to the b plot it's just nothing happened right it's just a lot of scenes of one of those two alien races hating the other one like there's yeah. at one point the 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 Soleil, the lizard people they try to they have like um not a noose but something like a net that that they use to to hunt and some kind of light bright gummy worm thing yeah and they they ensnare Riker in it thinking that he's going to be one of the dog people passing by and like oh and the wonderful sorry, thing but... is is he sees it coming like it's it's right it's right in his line of sight right. But the set was so small that we couldn't really put the camera and block the actors in, in a different way. To, right. To, yeah. Yeah. So that was unavoidable. So, yeah, the, 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 the scene called for him to get caught. Right. And nothing comes of that, of course. They weren't trying to catch Riker, but it's just an example of, of their feuding. And it's like, yes, it kind of escalates. The, there's that reference to eating meat. The lizard people are very, very violent in how they're trying to capture these guys, like ensnaring them by the neck. Um and it's, they're first of all, they're not at all diplomats. I don't know how these people were hired to be diplomats by their respective <laughs> races when n neither of them is interested in any kind of diplomatic solution at all. Yeah, if if these are the diplomats, you really have to wonder what the rest of the race is like. The rest of the race is just literally wild dogs and lizards with no uh, intellectual capabilities. These are, these are just a handful of each race that has evolved enough to speak. Yeah. But we are, we are actually treated to another uh, another meat scene with Yar, if you remember, with, yes. with the dogs. Uh, so they, they really drove this point home. Yar's only function in this episode is to interface with these two uh two aliens. And yeah. it's it's very silly in how it plays out. Especially at the at the very end of the episode, which we might as well talk about that now. Um when Yar so not to get to the end of the A plot, but the A plot's wrapping up and everybody's talking about that. And then Yar bursts into the room and she's like, Oh, Captain, um, the dog alien are eating the lizard aliens. And Riker's yeah. like, we don't really have time for this right now. Why don't, why don't, why don't you go <laughs> take care of that yourself? Yeah. He says, can't this wait a moment? Yeah. No? I'm sorry? Our you entire have... okay, mission so... is to escort these guys. And they're eating they're each not... other. They're not eating each other quite yet. Oh. So... So what what happens is Yar comes in uh, and tells them that the 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 dog people um, requested 
the the cook on the enter enterprise i can't talk today either Mitch. oh my god holy hell uh the dog people request the cook on the enterprise to um whip them up some some lizard person that they just freshly killed oh that's it that's right yeah so we hadn't reached cannibalism just yet it's attempted and this is actually interesting at this, point. this is actually interesting um because for all the hate mail we received for this this cannibalism bit at the end here um it could have been a lot worse it could have been a lot worse because you know this seems really abrupt mm. Um, and that's because it, uh, it was kind of reorganized last minute. So I remember this line being struck from the original script several times by the editors, this, this, this line about, you know, one race eating the other, mm. um, somehow it just kept sneaking its way back into the revised copies that would always, you know, end up in the actor's hands. Somebody was a big um, fan of this idea. Well, you know who was a big fan of this idea? Uh, teleplay writer DC Fontana. Oh, no. Um, interesting enough, she also wrote The Naked Now. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so even considering all this, we actually got off lucky here because her original script was going to treat the audience to an extended scene of um, one of the dog people, the Antiquans. That's it, the Antiquans. Having failed to gain the cooperation of the Enterprise's cook, slowly eating a live Sele whole as it begged for mercy. A little too and rated R. It was, it was, um, not only was the concept just extremely bizarre, um, we had to remind Fontana several times that this would just be physically impossible for the actors to perform. Um, and that, that, you know, after about a dozen or so reminders here, she finally acquiesced to, to just omitting the scene completely. Um, but somehow that, that cannibalism line was still kept in and, um, the, uh, the questionable presence of a, of a cook on the enterprise remained completely unaddressed. So what this, it's funny because this could have, if this idea was pitched later on in the series run, we could have done it. Um, do you remember, I think it's a season six episode, Data's having all these weird dreams, and one of them, mm -hmm. he, he had dreams of, uh, Troy as, like, a cake, like a cake Troy? Yes, yes, that's right, cake right. Troy. Right, we could have used the cake Troy technology to, to make this scene happen, like, those kind of special effects. Right, oh, absolutely. But, and, that, you know, that was groundbreaking at the time, that cake Troy technology. Exactly. Um, now, this might be a case of just someone who's a visionary being way too ahead of their time to, to properly execute what becomes commonplace later on. That's true. I mean, the, the line between genius and insanity is very thin. Incredibly thin. Incredibly thin. Yeah, um, I, I really do want to just uh, really harp on this cook on the Enterprise bit, though, because... I'm not sure what we're supposed to be taking out of this. Like, is there is there a full-time cook on the Enterprise? Um, did they hire a cook to accommodate the uh, the dog people? It just doesn't make sense, though. Because 
there's other examples of cooks being on starships that have replicating technology, replicator technology, and I can't rationalize it within the lore of the show. Um, I mean, we do we do get a bit in one episode where Riker cooks something, right? Yeah, but why would he have like an oven or a stove or something? Like why? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Why would they bother installing that kind of thing? Right. I mean, I guess I guess at this point in human development, I guess it's just like more of a hobby. It's just like a quaint little hobby, you know, I, like I, I, I know how to cook. There's always these references uh, to replicated food and drink not being quite like the real thing. In fact, the Anticans say that about meat in this episode. Um mm-hmm. I remember there's references to how like when they had a group of Irish people on board and they wanted to get really drunk, they were like, oh, you're replicated synthahol. That's not, that's not good stuff. That's not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but because the nature of a, a starship in space, like even if you cook something yourself, your ingredients are still going to be replicated. Like, where are you going to get those? Are you going to go to the, the Arboretum and pick some some vegetables like no. well i guess i guess it is i guess it is the difference though between you know having the ingredients and deliberately making something versus you know computer uh uh make me uh chicken marsala you know i don't know is 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 the computer chicken marsala going to be better or worse than the human crafted chicken marsala well you would tell it I, the, the exact composition of of i, I guess you, you could do that so yeah that's the thing like anything replicated is not based off of like an image or an idea it's based on how that was chemically composed and i assume it's it takes a sample of the real thing because it's always they always say oh we can't make this our computers have any information on it um so if let's say you make chicken marsala by hand and then you give that to the the replicator to scan it's gonna scan it the way that you've made it so, okay, here's a thought. What if the replicator, you know, is kind of, you know, standard issue and only has standard uh, a database entries that are approved by the Federation? Hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. Which does kind of make one ask the question why they wouldn't just get a bunch of world-class chefs together. Right, and then and... just load up their databases with right right so even that proposition kind of makes this whole concept fall flat on its face i wonder if this idea is explored more in voyager because voyager has a character whose role on the ship is the cook right or maybe they just sidestep it and don't talk about it at all (laughs) much like here much like here it's these things ring in a very dissonant way in the world of star trek which is otherwise mm-hmm. like pretty logically put together yeah yeah it's 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 akin to the issue you brought up a couple episodes ago where language doesn't work quite the way it should right yes and any any anyone who thinks critically for even just a moment will easily poke holes in the uh the universal translator but i think that which does kind of take you out of it sometimes I think that the universal translator is something that I'm more... So I was the one who complained about that, of course. But I think it's something I'm more likely to overlook or forgive or suspend my disbelief for. Um, because communication is just key to storytelling. Like, that's that's something yeah. you can't 
really get around. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's non-negotiable. Right. But just mentioning a cook is so irrelevant to all basically all of the stories of the show. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of, you know, bang you dock you points for this one because you chose to do this when you didn't have to. <laughs> right, right. So I think I think in conclusion, it it makes sense that people would pursue cooking uh you know on their own individual terms but having a professional cook on the enterprise is definitely questionable in many ways yes yes so like riker cooking for somebody for a date i can uh that that makes sense um that's not uh logically inconsistent but hiring a cook to consume resources on your military exploration starship um I cannot abide by. So, I mean, so we already touched upon the idea that the food does not taste as good out of the replicator. Yes. Or it doesn't taste the same. I don't know if it's... It doesn't a, taste the same. Yeah. I think right. Troy so comments with on that, this too with, like, chocolate. With that in mind, um, well, you know, now I'm kind of curious how all these characters know what, quote, real food tastes like if, if we've entered a a society that uses replicators so often. Um, well, I don't know if they but, used replicators so often on, on like the home. Oh level. yes, it would it would make sense to only be using them mostly on the ships, right? Right. It maybe I it's mean, like a luxury. It's like oh, you know, um, we saved up, we bought a replicator, and now mom doesn't have to cook, kind of thing. Like similar right, to right. buying a dishwasher, I guess. Well, they're not going to buy anything because it's a it's a post scarcity society. Oh, that's true. Right. So it like that that wouldn't really be the thing. I think maybe it's more like by uh, by stocking up on replicators on starships, you don't need to make um, you don't even, you, you don't need to make stops for like food supplies or anything. You know, nothing goes bad. What right? what do the replicators run off of? Like, don't they have like some kind of something that fuels them? Because they can't just create matter out of nothing, right? Um. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe the dead souls of children they have locked up in the the depths of the Enterprise. I'm not really sure. I think there's an in lore explanation for this, but God knows I don't know. I mean, there means. must be. There must. I mean, it's it's Star Trek. There's there's something on Memory Alpha. Don't worry. Well, we'll have to do some research on that because you know, we we as the crew weren't really privy to uh, that that deep kind of. Uh, explanations for no because maybe your clear, clear plot conveniences maybe he gets a throwaway line once and it's like if you're not in yeah. the right place at the right time on set to hear it then you yeah know. you're not you're not gonna know right but we'll do some research if it involves reading the novels then we will not do some research um, <laughs> yeah. uh all right so let's um Let's move back a little bit, because because what we were just talking about was the very end of the episode, the uh, the then point the where the plot. the episode the episode closes um, at at a very abrupt time. So let's move back and and continue the a plot here. So we had left off is, with the engineer dying. Yeah, the engineer dies having contracted the, uh, which is interesting that it kills him. So yeah. Here's here's the fun thing about the way this interacts with everyone. It knocks Worf out, 
It possesses Crusher to go to the bridge. It kills the Indian guy. And then possesses and then Picard. Possesses Picard. Um, note here, it possesses the only two white people. Mm. Hmm. Food for thought. Definitely. Definitely. Now, how does Picard get possessed? Picard, right? he's on the bridge. At this point, the, the entity is inside the ship's computer. And he goes over to talk to Geordi at the helm, and he like puts his hand on the console um, mm -hmm. in a very like non-natural, unnatural way. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's framed in such a way that we are... Uh, we... It's it's telling us to, to 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 pay attention to the fact that he's put his hands on this computer console in a way that no one in the show has ever done or will ever do again. Right. Unless they need to be possessed by something. Right. In which case, uh, yeah, yeah, the, you know, in this in this case, uh, he is possessed by something. Uh, and blue um, lightning. the blue lightning, and. He immediately orders the uh, the ship to reverse course back to the blue cloud of energy. Hmm. Which I um, I think this is the best part of the episode. It definitely is. Um, all of this stuff with Picard being um, possessed by an alien entity, and all of the crew not really knowing how to handle that, is yeah. is genuinely interesting. I believe. Yeah. Um, Not only is it interesting from the crew perspective, but also you kind of see a little bit of Picard's weakness here where, you know, the, the combined entity of him and the Blue Lightning was not lying when they said that all he really cares about is, like, exploring stuff. Right. So you, you can definitely see why Picard would actually acquiesce to an alien like this and just say, yeah, screw it. I'll leave if I can go explore these uncharted parts of space. Uh, you, 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 can, you can see where that little weakness would allow him to kind of be overcome by this alien's desire to go home. Right, and that's, what's, what, that's what makes the entire dynamic between Picard and the crew as interesting as it is, because Picard is not like possessed by a murderous alien. He's not going to kill anybody or put their lives in danger. He's just, I'm resigning. And I'm going to go yeah. do this other thing with my life. Like, are you? Can yeah. you really stop me from doing that? I, I haven't harmed right. anybody. I'm just resigning myself. And it's it's interesting because because he's not necessarily even entirely possessed. They've just become like a whole entirely new consciousness, mm. which is really cool. Yeah, they he always uses the the the, the pronoun we for describing yeah. things because they, you know, they're yeah. both in there. Now, and he he does act much in the same way. It's just he's like his actions to the crew are very suspicious. Right. Now this I like that this um takes place really early in the show's run because it kind of has this element of well these people don't really know Picard super well. You know they mm -hmm. they, they haven't been together for a very long time. So if he's going to start acting strangely they don't have so much ground to stand on in like, oh, this isn't Picard. Uh, right, right. So it's, it's like I said, it's pretty neat. Um, the, yeah. The, the thematic 
uh, elements of this also are relatively deep. Like, mm -hmm. there's the one scene where um, Picard's in his office and he gets confronted by Riker and Crusher who want to do some tests on him because they, they noticed how he acts strangely and Picard kind of shuts them down. And that whole scene has, like, a very real-life inspiration to it. Um, so at the time... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. right. So at the time, um, Gene's mental health was deteriorating. Um, God bless him. God bless him. Really a victim to typical dementia symptoms. Uh, they were ultimately responsible for him leaving the show's production later on. and But by this point, the, the signs were blossoming, and people in the know knew about it. Uh, everybody else, very hush-hush, you don't talk about it, especially not to him. But the writers wanted to kind of reach out to Gene, put this, this scene in of Crusher and Riker, who are really worried about Picard's mental state, begging him mm -hmm. to submit to some examinations and tests. And Picard, of course, you know, shuts them down. And the idea is that the audience, the reader of the scripts, would feel very helpless, very hopeless. Mm -hmm. Like, oh no, Picard, can't you see what's happening to you? We're trying to help. Um, and this would reach out to Gene in a way. And now, unfortunately, Gene completely failed to grasp the, the nuance of the scene. Um, it might have been a bit of willful ignorance. Obviously, we can't be sure. But, you know, unfortunately, we know how that ended up going. Yeah, yeah. It, when you look at it this way, it's a bit of a tragic scene, really. Um, as as we all know, Picard eventually comes back to the ship, but um, eventually Gene did not. Right. But uh, I... And you know what? I kind of... That's the part of the episode I dislike. Um, maybe I'm colored by how gene's story went and how gene couldn't come back but picard did but picard coming back after beaming out into space into becoming an energy entity um yeah always felt kind of cheap to me i didn't like it it's very cheap it, it makes no sense it doesn't and it's it's a shame because it comes at the tail end of this really cool story um which is based entirely just on character interactions and emotional drama and it's solved by science fiction magic it's like oh mm -hmm. reconstituting with our with our teleporters and yeah and that's the thing it is essentially just magic right and uh trek is you know supposed to be above that this really doesn't fall in line with what we understand to be the functions of the uh the transporter no it's um so it's just an ass pull and it, yeah there had to have been a better way like just to to write the story where picard doesn't end up um teleporting off. off and i yeah. i don't remember if there was a commercial break there and it was supposed to ratchet up the drama um before break or not but yeah it it kind of painted the the scenario into a corner where there's no satisfying way to fix the situation. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, really all they had to do was, was figure out a way to keep Picard on the Enterprise while also being somehow separated from the alien. Right. Um, which, I mean, you know, I can see being difficult in its own way. But 
What? Yeah, completely getting rid of his body and then uh, and then reconstituting it was ridiculous. I think what they could have done is to have, and this is just like five seconds of thinking. Um, they're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna use some subterfuge and trick Picard, and it's like, okay, all right, Picard, we'll beam you out. You know, we understand you resign, we support you, and then mm-hmm. whoever's manning the console kind of pulls some trickery where they're like all right beam the card out keep track on the signal separate the two energy streams pull the card back like whatever yeah yeah you know you know what that's that's a good point it lines up with what we talked about the previous episode where these these plots where the enterprise crew does not really solve things on their own do tend to tend to be a little flat Mm. you know and that that's actually you know pretty much what happened here with with the crew and their uh, their conflict with Picard is that they talk to each other about it they confront him and then they do nothing right and it just kind of resolves itself it's like and oh, so yeah I think, Picard I think that... went to the right place in space and they just right lucky yeah exactly it's all just like plot contrivances so that's actually a really good compromise is is have them trick the the entity that is now the alien and picard combined and separate picard from it i think that's a really good idea it's it's something whereas what we kind of have is more of nothing nothing yeah um i do i do want to note as well um that plots like this are pretty interesting to me because as an audience you know you're you're dealing with like a new star trek crew and everything um Riker is a fairly strong character, I would say. Hmm. He's number one. Uh, he's obviously a, a Kirk stand-in. So very familiar to longtime watchers of Trek at this point, right? He, he's, he's very, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of copied from the face of Trek, really. Yeah. And so when you get these episodes where it seems like Picard is just going to kick it uh, early on here. Uh, a lot of the times you're, you would almost believe it. Like, yeah, you, you, you could almost see him completely leaving the cast and Riker becoming captain. He's kind of primed um, to take over. Yeah. He's always primed to take over. And so, and, and it is exactly that relationship and that the, the fact that that character is so strong that when Picard is in danger, you feel it. Mm. I mean, nowadays maybe not so much because you know if if you pay any attention to the next generation at all you know picard lives through the whole thing but watching this kind of stuff on tv you would absolutely believe you know picard could just be gone at any time and this happens a couple times i think um, the culmination the culmination of this is the best of both worlds yeah yeah absolutely yeah so that's like a a riker-centric episode where the theme is what he's going to do with his life. And then mm-hmm. Picard is in this very precarious situation. And of course, Riker's in a position where he would, um, he could solve that situation essentially by killing Picard. And yeah. thinking about that story in a, in a vacuum, it's a, you know, it's very believable. Now when it's, it's framed in such a way that like, Oh, Riker's going to make the key decision right before we cut between two seasons. Um, it's it would almost be um almost melodramatic in a way to kill off Picard 
like at the beginning of one season rather than at the end of the other. Um, yeah, that's true. So that's definitely true. These these kind of things they they thematically one can be- readily believe that Picard would be in danger and that Riker might take over, but I feel like very often they're sunk by the logistics of television episodes, seasons, mm-hmm. commercial breaks, hiatuses, um, where you know you do a little more thinking about it. And granted, you know in today's world, uh, people are very keyed into like. Oh, random news story. This person signed on for three more seasons of this show or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But back in the 80s, that information was a lot harder to come by. And people didn't think about production as much because the you had to go looking for details on that rather than just having it blasted at you. And Yeah, it's definitely channels. a lot more accessible now. Yeah. So I agree. Um, and I think... I like that about Riker. I like that Riker could just be the main character. Um, like he's mm-hmm. got enough going on while we also have a very strong lead character in Picard. Um, yeah. I don't think the two clash um, in for screen time or anything or, or wanting to see one but not the other. It's two very strong elements that work very harmoniously. Yeah, which I'm honestly, I think that's one of my favorite parts about TNG is is that relationship between those two characters because you always want to see more of them. Right. And I think the Riker episodes are some of my favorite. And then they're without a doubt the best episodes of the show. Then basically every other episode Picard has a strong presence in. So you, you, you really get both. Yeah. Definitely. Um so um so yeah, we we uh we kinda covered it. Yeah, that's that's about it. Picard comes back. Uh, he gets reconstituted by the transporter. Um, Yar runs in, uh, exclaims that the two delegate parties that they were supposed to transport are eating each other, and uh, Riker tells her to fuck off. It's it's a wonderful, wonderfully constructed ending because you can picture yeah. like like a sitcom where the camera freeze frames and some like cheesy theme plays. It's like da da da. Um, the Picard or, <laughs> Yar's looking directly at the camera. Yeah, Yar runs in. The, the two delegates are eating each other. Da da da. Cut credits. Oh my god, that would have been a better ending. It would have been. It would have been. Be honest. Um, but yeah, because that's the last emotion you have watching this show. Is why doesn't Riker care about this? Why is this not important? <laughs> yeah, it leaves you with uh, with very mixed feelings about the episode um and yeah i i think i in conclusion the episode was not so great no but it wasn't the worst it wasn't it was definitely not uh not the previous episode but I, i'll take an episode that's like 50 percent um above average and 50 percent like really bad rather than yeah. one that's like all mediocre <laughs> yeah yeah i i think i agree with that uh, I, I I had fun watching this episode. Uh, it was kind of funny in all the wrong ways, but it it, it like you said, it did have that uh, that a plot had a pretty strong base to it. Yeah. So that that anchored my my positive feelings for it. Um, yeah. But if there's nothing else to say on this episode, we'll have to bid uh, the lonely among us a nice farewell into its energy. So cloud. I. Uh... 
do you want to plug our email address and what oh, would that be? That's that's a great point. Um, our email address is theReadierRoom at gmail.com. That's a capital T, capital R, and another capital R in the Readier Room. Um, feel free to send us any questions that you may or may not have. Um, and we'll comments, them. anything. Oh, comments, anything, constructive really. criticism, deconstructive criticism. It's all good. And we'll answer them right on the show. Yeah, yeah. So looking forward to that. Oh, very much so. And until next time, everybody, please stay ready. The Troublesome Little Man Child. Consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. Beginning, 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 beginning.